Welcome to Radio Read Along, a podcast for the whole family, featuring dramatic, word for word readings of classic stories for all ages. In today's episode, Megan Andrews reads chapters 7 and 8 of Peter Pan by J.M. Barry. You may follow along in your own copy of the story, or sit back, relax, and let your mind's eye do the work. Chapter 7 The Home Under the Ground One of the first things Peter did next day was to measure Wendy and John and Michael for hollow trees. Book, you remember, had sneered at the boys for thinking they needed a tree apiece, but this was ignorance, for unless your tree fitted you, it was difficult to go up and down, and no two of the boys were quite the same size. Once you fitted, you drew in your breath at the top, and down you went at exactly the right speed, while to ascend, you drew in and let out alternately, and so wriggled up. Of course, when you have mastered the action, you are able to do these things without thinking of them, and nothing can be more graceful. But you simply must fit, and Peter measures you for your tree as carefully as for a suit of clothes. The only difference being that the clothes are made to fit you, while you have to be made to fit the tree. Usually it's done quite easily, as by your wearing too many garments or too few, but if you are bumpy in awkward places, or the only available tree is an odd shape, Peter does some things to you, and after that, you fit. Once you fit, great care must be taken to go on fitting, and this, as Wendy was to discover to her delight, keeps a whole family in perfect condition. Wendy and Michael fitted their trees at the first try, but John had to be altered a little. After a few days' practice, they could go up and down as gaily as buckets in a well, and how ardently they grew to love their home under the ground, especially Wendy. It consisted of one large room, as all houses should do, with a floor in which you could dig for worms if you wanted to go fishing, and in this floor grew stout mushrooms of a charming color, which were used as stools. A never-tree tried hard to grow in the center of the room, but every morning they sawed the trunk through, level with the floor. By tea-time, it was always about two feet high, and then they put a door on top of it, the whole thus becoming a table. As soon as they cleared away, they sawed off the trunk again, and thus there was more room to play. There was an enormous fireplace, which was in almost any part of the room where you cared to light it and across this Wendy stretched strings, made of fiber, from which she suspended her washing. The bed was tilted against the wall by day, and let down at 6.30, when it filled nearly half the room, and all the boys slept in it, except Michael, lying like sardines in a tin. There was a strict rule against turning round until one gave the signal, when all turned at once. Michael should have used it also, but Wendy would have a baby, and he was the littlest and you know what women are, and the short and long of it is that he was hung up in a basket. It was rough and simple, and not unlike what baby bears would have made of an underground house, in the same circumstances, but there was one recess in the wall, no larger than a bird cage, which was the private apartment of Tinkerbell. It could be shut off from the rest of the house by a tiny curtain, which Tink, who was most fastidious, always kept drawn when dressing or undressing. No woman, however large, could have had a more exquisite boudoir and bedchamber combined. 
The couch, as she always called it, was a genuine Queen Mab with club legs, and she varied the bedspreads according to what fruit blossom was in season. Her mirror was a puss in boots, of which there are now only three unchipped known to fairy dealers. The washstand was pie-crust and reversible, the chest of drawers an authentic charming the sixth, and the carpet and the rugs the best early period of Marjorie and Robin. There was a chandelier from Tiddlywinks for the look of the thing, but of course she lit the residence herself. Tink was very contemptuous of the rest of the house, as indeed was perhaps inevitable, and her chamber, though beautiful, looked rather conceited, having the appearance of a nose permanently turned up. I suppose it was all especially entrancing to Wendy, because those rampageous boys of hers gave her so much to do. Really, there were whole weeks when, except perhaps with a stocking in the evening, she was never above ground. The cooking, I can tell you, kept her nose to the pot, and even if there was nothing in it, even if there was no pot, she had to keep watching that it came a-boil just the same. You never exactly knew whether there would be a real meal or just a make-believe. It all depended on Peter's whim. He could eat, really eat, if it was part of a game, but he could not stodge just to feel stodgy, which is what most children like better than anything else. The next best thing being to talk about it. Make-believe was so real to him that during a meal of it you could see him getting rounder. Of course, it was trying, but you simply had to follow his lead, and if you could prove to him that you were getting loose for your tree, he let you stodge. Wendy's favorite time for sewing and darning was after they had all gone to bed. Then, as she expressed it, she had a breathing time for herself and she occupied it in making new things for them, and putting double pieces on the knees, for they were all most frightfully hard on their knees. When she sat down to a basketful of their stockings, every heel with a hole in it, she would fling up her arms and exclaim, "'Oh, dear! I'm sure I sometimes think spinsters are to be envied!' Her face beamed when she exclaimed this. "'You remember about her pet wolf?' Well, it very soon discovered that she had come to the island, and it found her out and they just ran into each other's arms. After that, it followed her about everywhere. As time wore on, did she think much about the beloved parents she had left behind her? This is a difficult question, because it's quite impossible to say how time does wear on in the Neverland, where it's calculated by moons and suns, and there are ever so many more of them than on the mainland. But I'm afraid that Wendy did not really worry about her father and mother. She was absolutely confident that they would always keep the window open for her to fly back by, and this gave her complete ease of mind. What did disturb her at times was that John remembered his parents vaguely only as people he had once known, while Michael was quite willing to believe that she was really his mother. These things scared her a little and nobly anxious to do her duty, she tried to fix the old life in their minds by setting them examination papers on it, as like as possible to the ones she used to do at school. The other boys thought this awfully interesting and insisted on joining, and they made slates for themselves and sat round the table, writing and thinking hard about the questions she had written on another slate and passed around. They were the most ordinary questions. What was the color of mother's eyes? Which was taller, father or mother? Was mother blonde or brunette? 
Answer all three questions if possible. A. Write an essay of not less than 40 words on how I spent my last holidays. Or, the characters of father and mother compared. Only one of these to be attempted. Or, 1. Describe mother's laugh. 2. Describe father's laugh. 3. Describe mother's party dress. 4. Describe the kennel and its inmate. They were just everyday questions like these, and when you could not answer them, you were told to make a cross, and it was really dreadful what a number of crosses even John made. Of course, the only boy who replied to every question was Slightly, and no one could have been more hopeful of coming out first, but his answers were perfectly ridiculous, and he really came out last, a melancholy thing. Peter did not compete. For one thing, he despised all mothers, except Wendy. And for another, he was the only boy on the island who could neither write nor spell, not the smallest word. He was above all that sort of thing. By the way, the questions were all written in the past tense. What was the color of mother's eyes? And so on. Wendy, you see, had been forgetting, too. Adventures, of course, as we shall see, were of daily occurrence. But about this time, Peter invented, with Wendy's help, a new game that fascinated him enormously, until he suddenly had no more interest in it, which, as you have been told, was what always happened with his games. It consisted in pretending not to have adventures, in doing the sort of thing John and Michael had been doing all their lives, sitting on stools, flinging balls in the air, pushing each other, going out for walks and coming back without having killed so much as a grizzly. To see Peter doing nothing on a stool was a great sight. He could not help looking solemn at such times. To sit still seemed to him such a comic thing to do. He boasted that he had gone walking for the good of his health. For several sons, these were the most novel of all adventures to him, and John and Michael had to pretend to be delighted also, otherwise he would have treated them severely. He often went out alone, and when he came back, you were never absolutely certain whether he had had an adventure or not. He might have forgotten it so completely that he said nothing about it. And then, when you went out, you found the body. And, on the other hand, he might say a great deal about it, and yet you could not find the body. Sometimes he came home with his head bandaged, and then Wendy cooed over him and bathed it in lukewarm water while he told a dazzling tale but she was never quite sure, you know. There were, however, many adventures which she knew to be true because she was in them herself, and there were still more that were at least partly true for the other boys were in them and said they were wholly true. To describe them all would require a book as large as an English-Latin-Latin-English dictionary, and the most we can do is to give one as a specimen of an average hour on the island. The difficulty is which one to choose. Should we take the brush with the redskins at Slightly Gulch? It was a sanguinary affair, and especially interesting as showing one of Peter's peculiarities, which was that in the middle of a fight, he would suddenly change sides. At the Gulch, when victory was still in the balance, sometimes leaning this way and sometimes that, he called out, I'm a redskin today. What are you, Tootles? And Tootles answered, Redskin, what are you, Nibs? And Nibs said, Redskin, what are you, twin? And so on, and they were all redskins. And of course, this would have ended the fight had not the real redskins, 
fascinated by Peter's methods, agreed to be lost boys for that once, and so at it they all went again, more fiercely than ever. The extraordinary upshot of this adventure was, but we have not decided yet that this is the adventure we are going to narrate. Perhaps a better one would be the night attack by the Redskins on the house under the ground, when several of them stuck in hollow trees and had to be pulled out like corks. Or we might tell how Peter saved Tiger Lily's life in the mermaid's lagoon and so made her his ally. Or we could tell of that cake the pirates cooked so that the boys might eat it and perish, and how they placed it in one cunning spot after another, but always Wendy snatched it from the hands of her children so that in time it lost its succulence and became as hard as a stone and was used as a missile and Hook fell over it in the dark. Or suppose we tell of the birds that were Peter's friends, particularly of the never bird that built in a tree overhanging the lagoon and how the nest fell into the water and still the bird sat on her eggs and Peter gave orders that she was not to be disturbed. That is a pretty story and the end shows how grateful a bird can be. But if we tell it, we must also tell the whole adventure of the lagoon, which would of course be telling two adventures rather than just one. A shorter adventure, and quite as exciting, was Tinkerbell's attempt, with the help of some street fairies, to have the sleeping Wendy conveyed on a great floating leaf to the mainland. Fortunately, the leaf gave way, and Wendy woke, thinking it was bath time, and swam back. Or again, we might choose Peter's defiance of the lions when he drew a circle round him on the ground with an arrow and dared them to cross it. And though he waited for hours, with the other boys and Wendy looking on breathlessly from the trees, not one of them dared to accept his challenge. Which of these adventures shall we choose? The best way will be to toss for it. I have tossed, and the lagoon has won. This almost makes one wish that the gulch or the cake or Tink's leaf had won. Of course, I could do it again and make it best out of the three. However, perhaps fairest to stick to the lagoon. Chapter 8. The Mermaid's Lagoon If you shut your eyes and are a lucky one, you may see at times a shapeless pool of lovely pale colors suspended in the darkness. Then, if you squeeze your eyes tighter, the pool begins to take shape, and the colors become so vivid that with another squeeze they must go on fire. But just before they go on fire, you see a lagoon. This is the nearest you ever get to it, on the mainland, just one heavenly moment. If there could be two moments, you might see the surf and hear the mermaids singing. The children often spent long summer days on this lagoon, swimming or floating most of the time, playing the mermaid games in the water, and so forth. You must not think from this that the mermaids were on friendly terms with them. On the contrary, it was among Wendy's lasting regrets that all the time she was on the island, she never had a civil word from one of them. When she stole softly to the edge of the lagoon, she might see them by a score, especially on Marooner's Rock where they loved to bask, combing out their hair in a lazy way that quite irritated her. Or she might even swim, on tiptoe as it were, to within a yard of them. But then they saw her and dived, probably splashing her with their tails, not by accident, but intentionally. They treated all the boys in the same way, except, of course, Peter, 
who chatted with them on Marooner's Rock by the hour and sat on their tails when they got cheeky. He gave Wendy one of their combs. The most haunting time at which to see them is at the turn of the moon, when they utter strange, wailing cries. But the lagoon is dangerous for mortals then, and until the evening of which we have now to tell, Wendy had never seen the lagoon by moonlight, less from fear, for of course Peter would have accompanied her, than because she had strict rules about everyone being in bed by seven. She was often at the lagoon, however, on sunny days after rain, when the mermaids came up in extraordinary numbers to play with their bubbles. The bubbles of many colors, made in rainbow water, they treat as balls, hitting them gaily from one to another with their tails, and trying to keep them in the rainbow till they burst. The goals are at each end of the rainbow, and the keepers only are allowed to use their hands. Sometimes a dozen of these games will be going on in the lagoon at a time, and it is quite a pretty sight. But the moment the children tried to join in, they had to play by themselves, for the mermaids immediately disappeared. Nevertheless, we have proof that they secretly watched the interlopers and were not above taking an idea from them, for John introduced a new way of hitting the bubble, with the head instead of the hands, and the mermaids adopted it. This is the one mark that John has left on Neverland. It must also have been rather pretty to see the children resting on a rock for half an hour after their midday meal. Wendy insisted on their doing this, and it had to be a real rest, even though the meal was make-believe. So they lay there in the sun, and their bodies glistened in it, while she sat beside them and looked important. It was one such day, and they were all on Marooner's Rock. The rock was not much larger than their great bed, but of course they all knew how to not take up much room, and they were dozing, or at least lying with their eyes shut, and pinching occasionally when they thought Wendy was not looking. She was very busy, stitching. While she stitched, a change came to the lagoon. Little shivers ran over it, and the sun went away, and shadows stole across the water, turning it cold. Wendy could no longer see to thread her needle, and when she looked up, the lagoon, that had always hitherto been such a laughing place, seemed formidable and unfriendly. It was not, she knew, that night had come, but something as dark as night had come. No, worse than that. It had not come, but it had sent that shiver through the sea to say that it was coming. What was it? There crowded upon her all the stories she had been told of Marooner's Rock, so-called because evil captains put sailors on it and leave them there to drown. They drown when the tide rises, for then it is submerged. Of course, she should have roused the children at once, not merely because of the unknown that was stalking toward them, but because it was no longer good for them to sleep on a rock grown chilly. But she was a young mother, and she did not know this. She thought, you simply must stick to your rule about half an hour after the midday meal. So, though fear was upon her and she longed to hear male voices, she would not waken them. Even when she heard the sound of muffled oars, Though her heart was in her mouth, she did not waken them. She stood over them to let them have their sleep out. Was it not brave of Wendy? It was well for those boys, then, that there was one among them who could sniff danger even in his sleep. Peter sprang erect, as wide awake at once as a dog, and with one warning cry he roused the others. He stood motionless, one hand to his ear. "'Pirates!' he cried." 
The others came closer to him. A strange smile was playing about his face, and Wendy saw it and shuddered. While that smile was on his face, no one dared address him. All they could do was to stand ready to obey. The order came, sharp and incisive. Dive! There was a gleam of legs, and instantly the lagoon seemed deserted. Marooner's Rock stood alone in the forbidding waters, as if it were itself marooned. The boat drew nearer. It was the pirate dinghy, with three figures in her, Smee and Starkey, and the third a captive, no other than Tiger Lily. Her hands and ankles were tied, and she knew what was to be her fate. She was to be left on the rock to perish, an end to one of her race more terrible than death by fire or torture, for is it not written in the book of the tribe that there is no path through water to the happy hunting ground? Yet her face was impassive. She was the daughter of a chief. She must die as a chief's daughter. It is enough. They had caught her boarding the pirate ship with a knife in her mouth. No watch was kept on the ship, it being Hook's boast that the wind of his name guarded the ship for a mile around. Now her fate would help to guard it also. One more whale would go the round in that wind by night. In the gloom that they brought with them, the two pirates did not see the rock till they crashed into it. "'Bluff, you lubber!' cried an Irish voice that was Smee's. "'Here's the rock. Now then, what we have to do is to hoist the redskin onto it and leave her here to drown.' It was the work of one brutal moment to land the beautiful girl on the rock. She was too proud to offer a vain resistance. Quite near the rock, but out of sight, two heads were bobbing up and down, Peter's and Wendy's. Wendy was crying, for it was the first tragedy she had seen. Peter had seen many tragedies, but he had forgotten them all. He was less sorry than Wendy for Tiger Lily. It was two against one that angered him, and he meant to save her. An easy way would have been to wait until the pirates had gone, but he was never one to choose the easy way. There was almost nothing he could not do, and now he imitated the voice of Hook. "'Ahoy there, you lubbers!' he called. It was a marvellous imitation. "'The captain!' said the pirates, staring at each other in surprise. "'He must be swimming out to us,' Starkey said, when they had looked for him in vain. "'We're putting the red skin on the rock!' Smee called out. "'Set her free!' came the astonishing answer. Free? Yes, cut her bonds and let her go. But, Captain, at once, do you hear? cried Peter, or I'll plunge my hook in you. Well, this is queer, Smee gasped. Better do what the Captain orders, said Starkey nervously. Aye, aye, Smee said, and he cut Tiger Lily's cords. At once, like an eel, she slid between Starkey's legs into the water. Of course, Wendy was very elated over Peter's cleverness, but she knew that he would be elated also, and very likely crow, and thus betray himself. So at once her hand went out to cover his mouth. But it was stayed even in the act, for "'Boat ahoy!' rang over the lagoon in Hook's voice, and this time it was not Peter who had spoken. Peter may have been about to crow, but his face puckered in a whistle of surprise instead. "'Boat ahoy!' again came the voice. Now Wendy understood. The real hook was also in the water. He was swimming to the boat, 
and as his men showed a light to guide him, he had soon reached them. In the light of the lantern, Wendy saw his hook grip the boat's side. She saw his evil, swarthy face as he rose, dripping from the water, and quaking, she would have liked to swim away. But Peter would not budge. He was tingling with life, and also top-heavy with conceit. "'Am I not a wonder? Oh, I'm a wonder!' he whispered to her. And though she thought so also, she was really glad for the sake of his reputation that no one heard him except herself. He signed to her to listen. The two pirates were very curious to know what had brought their captain to them, but he sat with his head on his hook in a position of profound melancholy. "'Captain, is all well?' they asked timidly. But he answered with a hollow moan. "'He sighs,' said Smee. "'He sighs again.' said Starkey. And yet a third time he sighs, said Smee. Then at last he spoke passionately. The game's up, he cried. Those boys have found a mother. Affrighted though she was, Wendy swelled with pride. Oh, evil day, cried Starkey. What's a mother? asked the ignorant Smee. Wendy was so shocked that she exclaimed, He doesn't know! And always after this, she felt that if you could have a pet pirate, Smee would be her one. Peter pulled her beneath the water. Her hook had started up, crying, What was that? I heard nothing, said Starkey, raising the lantern over the waters. And as the pirates looked, they saw a strange sight. It was the nest I've told you of, floating on the lagoon, and the Neverbird was sitting on it. See, said Hook, in answer to Smee's question, that is a mother. What a lesson! The nest must have fallen into the water, but would the mother desert her eggs? No. There was a break in his voice, as if for a moment he recalled innocent days when— but he brushed away this weakness with his hook. Smee, much impressed, gazed at the bird as the nest was borne past, but the more suspicious Starkey said, If she's a mother, perhaps she's hanging out about here to help Peter. Hook winced. Aye, he said, that is the fear that haunts me. He was roused from this dejection by Smee's eager voice. Captain, said Smee, could we not kidnap these boys' mother and make her our mother? It is a princely scheme, cried Hook, and at once it took practical shape in his great brain. We will seize the children and carry them to the boat. The boys we will make walk the plank and Wendy shall be our mother. Again, Wendy forgot herself. Never, she cried, and bobbed. What was that? But they could see nothing. They thought it must have been a leaf in the wind. Do you agree, my bullies? asked Hook. There's my hand on it, they both said, and there's my hook. Swear. They all swore. By this time they were on the rock, and suddenly Hook remembered Tiger Lily. "'Where's the redskin?' he demanded abruptly. He had a playful humor at moments, and they thought this was one of the moments. "'It's all right, Captain,' Smee answered complacently. "'We let her go!' "'Let her go?' cried Hook. "'Twas your own orders,' the bosun faltered. "'You called over the water to us to let her go,' said Starkey. "'Brimstone and gall!' thundered Hook. "'What cozening's going on here?' His face had gone black with rage, 
but he saw that they believed their words, and he was startled. Lads, he said, shaking a little, I gave no such order. It's passing queer, Smee said, and they all fidgeted uncomfortably. Hook raised his voice, but there was a quiver in it. Spirit that haunts this dark lagoon tonight, he cried. Just hear me? Of course, Peter should have kept quiet, but of course he did not. He immediately answered in Hook's voice, Odds, bobs, hammer and tongs, I hear you. In that supreme moment, Hook did not blanch, even at the gills, but Smee and Starkey clung to each other in terror. Who are you, stranger? Speak, Hook demanded. I am James Hook, replied the voice, captain of the Jolly Roger. You are not, you are not, Hook cried hoarsely. Brimstone and gall, the voice retorted. Say that again and I'll cast anchor in you. Hook tried a more ingratiating manner. If you are Hook, he said almost humbly, come, tell me, who am I? A codfish, replied the voice. Only a codfish. A codfish, Hook echoed blankly. And it was then, but not till then, that his proud spirit broke. He saw his men draw back from him. Have we been captained all this time by a codfish? They muttered. It is lowering to our pride. They were his dogs snapping at him. But, tragic figure though he had become, he scarcely heeded them. Against such fearful evidence, it was not their belief in him that he needed. It was his own. He felt his ego slipping from him. Don't desert me, bully, he whispered hoarsely to it. In his dark nature, there was a touch of the feminine, as in all the great pirates, and it sometimes gave him intuitions. Suddenly, he tried the guessing game. Hook, he called, have you another voice? Now Peter could never resist a game, and he answered blithely in his own voice, I have. And another name? Aye, aye. Vegetable? asked Hook. No. Mineral? No. Animal? Yes. Man? No! This answer rang out scornfully. Boy? Yes. Ordinary boy? No. Wonderful boy? To Wendy's pain, the answer that rang out this time was yes. Are you in England? No. Are you here? Yes. Hook was completely puzzled. You ask him some questions, he said to the others, wiping his damp brow. Smee reflected. I can't think of a thing, he said regretfully. Can't guess, can't guess, crowed Peter. Do you give it up? Of course, in his pride, he was carrying the game too far, and the miscreants saw their chance. Yes, yes, they answered eagerly. Well then, he cried, I am Peter Pan. Pan. In a moment, Hook was himself again, and Smee and Starkey were his faithful henchmen. Now we have him, Hook shouted. Into the water, Smee. Starkey, mind the boat. Take him, dead or alive. He leaped as he spoke, and simultaneously came the gay voice of Peter. Are you ready, boys? Aye, aye, from various parts of the lagoon. Then lamb into the pirates. The fight was short and sharp. First to draw blood was John, who gallantly climbed into the boat and held Starkey. 
there was a fierce struggle in which the cutlass was torn from the pirate's grasp. He wriggled overboard, and John leapt after him. The dinghy drifted away. Here and there a head bobbed up in the water, and there was a flash of steel, followed by a cry or a whoop. In the confusion, some struck at their own side. The corkscrew of Smee got Tootles in the fourth rib, but he was himself pinked in turn by Curly. Farther from the rock, Starkey was pressing slightly and the twins hard. Where all this time was Peter? He was seeking bigger game. The others were all brave boys, and they must not be blamed for backing from the pirate captain. His iron claw made a circle of dead water round him, from which they fled like affrighted fishes. But there was one who did not fear him. There was one prepared to enter that circle. Strangely, it was not in the water that they met. Hook rose to the rock to breathe, and at the same moment Peter scaled it on the opposite side. The rock was slippery as a ball, and they had to crawl rather than climb. Neither knew that the other was coming. Each feeling for a grip met the other's arm. In surprise, they raised their heads. Their faces were almost touching. So they met. Some of the greatest heroes have confessed that just before they fell, they had a sinking. Had it been so with Peter at that moment, I would admit it. After all, he was the only man that the sea cook had feared. But Peter had no sinking. He had one feeling only, gladness, and he gnashed his pretty teeth with joy. Quick as thought, he snatched a knife from Hook's belt and was about to drive it home when he saw that he was higher up the rock than his foe. It would not have been fighting fair. He gave the pirate a hand to help him up. It was then that Hook bit him. Not the pain of this, but its unfairness was what dazed Peter. It made him quite helpless. He could only stare, horrified. Every child is affected thus the first time he's treated unfairly. All he thinks he has a right to when he comes to you to be yours is fairness. After you have been unfair to him, he will love you again, but will never afterwards be quite the same boy. No one ever gets over the first unfairness. No one except Peter. He often met it, but he always forgot it. I suppose that was the real difference between him and all the rest. So when he met it now, it was like the first time, and he could just stare, helpless, Twice the iron hand clawed him. A few moments afterwards, the other boys saw Hook in the water, striking wildly for the ship. No elation on the pestilent face now, only white fear, for the crocodile was in dogged pursuit of him. On ordinary occasions, the boys would have swung alongside, cheering. But now they were uneasy, for they had lost both Peter and Wendy, and were scouring the lagoon for them, calling them by name. They found the dinghy and went home in it, shouting, Peter! Wendy! as they went. But no answer came, save mocking laughter from the mermaids. They must be swimming back, or flying, the boys concluded. They were not very anxious because they had such faith in Peter. They chuckled, boy-like, because they would be late for bed, and it was all Mother Wendy's fault. When their voices died away, there came cold silence over the lagoon, and then... A feeble cry. Help! Help! Two small figures were beating against the rock. The girl had fainted and lay on the boy's arm. With a last effort, Peter pulled her up the rock and then lay down beside her. Even as he also fainted, he saw that the water was rising. 
He knew that they would soon be drowned, but he could do no more. As they lay side by side, a mermaid caught Wendy by the feet and began pulling her softly into the water. Peter, feeling her slip from him, woke with a start and was just in time to draw her back. But he had to tell her the truth. "'We're on the rock, Wendy,' he said. "'But it's growing smaller. Soon the water will be over it.' She did not understand, even now. "'We must go,' she said, almost brightly. "'Yes,' he answered, faintly. "'Shall we swim or fly, Peter?' He had to tell her. "'Do you think you could swim or fly as far as the island, Wendy, without my help?' She had to admit that she was too tired. He moaned. "'What is it?' she asked, anxious about him at once. "'I can't help you, Wendy. Hook wounded me. I can neither fly nor swim.' "'Do you mean we shall both be drowned?' Look how the water's rising. They put their hands over their eyes to shut out the sight. They thought they would soon be no more. As they sat thus, something brushed against Peter, as light as a kiss, and stayed there, as if saying timidly, Can I be of any use? It was the tail of a kite, which Michael had made some days before. It had torn itself out of his hand and floated away. Michael's kite, Peter said, without interest. But next moment he'd seized the tail and was pulling the kite toward him. "'It lifted Michael off the ground,' he cried. "'Why should it not carry you?' "'Both of us. It can't lift two. Michael and Curly tried.' "'Let us draw lots,' Wendy said, bravely. "'And you a lady? Never!' Already he had tied the tail around her. She clung to him. She refused to go without him. But with a, "'Goodbye, Wendy,' he pushed her from the rock." and in a few minutes she was borne out of his sight. Peter was alone on the lagoon. The rock was very small now. Soon it would be submerged. Pale rays of light tiptoed across the waters, and by and by there was to be heard a sound at once the most musical and the most melancholy in the world, the mermaids calling to the moon. Peter was not quite like other boys, but he was afraid at last. A tremor ran through him, like a shudder passing over the sea. But on the sea one shudder follows another, till there are hundreds of them, and Peter felt just the one. Next moment he was standing erect on the rock again, with that smile on his face and a drum beating within him. It was saying, To die will be an awfully big adventure. Radio Read-Along is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network featuring weekly episodes from the world's best stories. Want to listen ahead? Find this entire novel inside the Pelican Society at www.pelicansociety.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.